Welcome to episode 47 of the X-Files Retrospective Podcast, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This week we are looking at F. Emasculata. This is an episode from season 2, which was set in Virginia for the most part, received an IMDb score of 8.1 out of 10, and originally aired on April 28, 1995. This was written by Howard Gordon, who just passed his halfway point in terms of writing credits on the series. This is episode 11 out of 20, for which he receives writing credit, and directed by Rob Bowman, which is episode 7 out of 33 directing credits for him on the series. The basic plot of this episode begins with a researcher, Dr. Robert Torrance, in Costa Rica, who's exposed to a contagion that kills him in a matter of hours. Now, this Robert Torrance is played by Bill Roat. It was his third IMDb credit. He's also known for Shattered Glass, Human Stain, Heist, and Afterglow. Still working today, but nothing really stands out to me. So shortly after that, when we're past the opening credits, a package arrives to prisoner Bobby Torrance in a prison, and inside is just a piece of raw meat which has been infected by the same contagion, which is an insect of some kind, that Dr. Robert Torrance was exposed to. And pretty soon this breaks out and several prisoners start dying. A couple of them manage to escape in the confusion. And Mulder and Scully are brought in, apparently to help with the manhunt. They're not sure why they're there. The team of U.S. Marshals isn't sure why they're there, but they are all in place. They end up deciding to split up. So Mulder goes with the U.S. Marshals. Now the actor who plays the lead marshal is Dean Norris, who's probably best known for his role as Hank Schrader in Breaking Bad, but he's also been in Little Miss Sunshine, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, Total Recall, and a number of other shows. While Scully stays behind with Dr. Osborne, played by Charles Martin Smith, who is probably best known for Untouchables, American Graffiti, Starman, and Never Cry Wolf. So we've kind of shifted out of the Before They Were Stars era of X-Files cast members and into an era where we're seeing regular working actors whose careers are already established and have already been in prominent shows. So once again, the industry as a whole is taking notice, and the general population are starting to as well. We also get a new story structure this time around, and it's one that's going to stick around for quite some time. So we've had issues where Scully doesn't see the paranormal activities or doesn't see whatever's going on that Mulder sees, and it was getting kind of strained with ways to conveniently knock Scully out and, or in last week's episode, just flat out see what's going on but refuse to accept it, and it was starting to undercut her character. So this is the first time that they use the approach where Mulder and Scully are split up and just communicating by cell phone. So Scully's back, usually in an autopsy bay or some other medical research facility to figure out what they're dealing with, while Mulder is the one that's out there on the road. And it's the first time we see that where most of their conversations are actually managed through mobile phones. So the two stars of the show aren't often acting in the same room and are not necessarily acting in the same location for a lot of this. While this is going on, Dr. Osborne is exposed to the contagion, partly as a result of Scully just refusing to back down and going after evidence. And Dr. Osborne shows up and tries to seal up a body that she had just unsealed, and that's when it bursts all over his face and exposes him. So he's got 36 hours to live, and... He's decided he doesn't want to take the secret to the grave and tell Scully over the course of the episode that, yeah, this is all being done by a pharmaceutical company. They were researching a type of insect for a particular dilating enzyme that it secretes, but it turns out that these insects also incubate a parasite, and it's the parasite that's killing people through the insect larva, and that Scully may have been exposed when he was, 
the parasite doesn't show up in blood tests, so he's actually found that the only way to really detect the parasite is to take an uninfected insect, have it feed off Scully's bloodstream, so it's basically taped to her arm, and see if it starts incubating the parasite by taking it out of her blood. We do learn that it doesn't, but the doctor, his body disappears, and he before that happens, he does tell Scully not to believe for a second that this is an isolated incident. And it appears that the government is involved in this because the U.S. Marshals are there helping with the lockdown. Meanwhile, in the field, Mulder's helping them with the manhunt. They realize that one of the prisoners has made contact with an old girlfriend, while the other one is very sick and very much infected. So the infected prisoner does eventually die. And that's right before the girlfriend, Elizabeth, finds her house raided by Mulder and the U.S. Marshals after they were following leads from who they were calling at gas stations after they've been stealing vehicles and attacking attendants and that sort of thing. Now, during that raid, we see a lot of the signature Rob Bowman directing choices. There's very much his signature lighting and strong visuals. This time, he's got a very strong script to back it up as well. We've got some excellent use of sound design when Mulder is essentially interviewing Elizabeth while she's in a contamination chamber or an isolation chamber, and we get some nice echoing of the sound in that. Now, it's probably just natural sound, but they made no attempt to filter it or remove it. They left it in there to keep it sounding natural. For the most part, this seems to be a standalone episode. We eventually find that when the whole thing wraps up, they can't really go public and say what happened because the package that showed up with the prisoner, which had the address rewritten in pen after a computer printed label was on the original package, because they had the same name, the pharmaceutical company can claim it's a post office mix up and it's all said and done. So Mulder and Scully really have no evidence that they can use to take public. And Skinner, in the absence of the cigarette smoking man, who was there the first time Mulder confronted them, does tell Mulder to let it be. These guys are several steps ahead and says that this is just the beginning, effectively confirming that they've sort of rattled enough sabers and got enough people concerned that for the first time, the people writing the conspiracies in the government are taking an active hand against Mulder and Scully. So they are orchestrating this whole thing in the hopes that Mulder and Scully would go public so they can be completely discredited and removed from the FBI. So just to run through the rest of the cast, we do have John Piper Ferguson in his first of two roles on the X-Files spread over three episodes. So we will see him again in season four. So he was Paul. He was the prisoner who wasn't immediately infected, but he did get infected later and was caught up with at the bus stop. And Mulder was trying to get a statement from him when the marshal figured Mulder's plan is going south. He couldn't hear what was going on, but he had a clear shot and he took out Paul. So he is best known for his work in Drive, Unforgiven, X-Men, The Last Stand, and Conviction. Now, Angelo Vaco was the other escape prisoner. He's best known for the Blind Side, Fantastic Four proposal, and G.I. Joe Rise of Cobra, mostly for ADR voices. So it appears he's a good impressionist who's able to step up to the mic and fill in dialogue after things were initially recorded. But this is his first of four appearances in four different roles on the X-Files. Now, Linda Boyd is here in her second and final appearance on the X-Files. She played the girlfriend Elizabeth in this one. She previously appeared in Fire as the woman at the bar, aka Mrs. Kocek. And the other truly notable member of the cast and production crew this time around is makeup artist Toby Lindala. So he's the one that managed to rig up the specific pustules. So when we see this infection, these parasites actually cause swelling in the skin's tissue, and it begins to actually pulse and move to indicate that there is something underneath it before it bursts 
and the larva and the parasite splatter out. And for me, at least, it's really that effect that drives the episode home and it really sets it apart. Without that effect, I don't think the episode would work nearly as well as it does here. So he's also done makeup work for Supernatural, for X-Men 2, Once Upon a Time, Final Destination 3. He's got 103 makeup credits, and this is just one of the times that his work on the X-Files is going to really make him stand out. So overall, it's a good episode. There are some minor technical glitches. For example, the early scenes that are meant to be set in Costa Rica, which are quite clearly filmed in the Vancouver area in those forests, have a lot of camera flare and lens flare across the top of the image. It's the kind of thing that cinematographers traditionally try to remove, although in Star Trek it was inserted. It's actually really hard to produce that nowadays when you go to digital film work. Just the lensing structure and the optics involved make it extremely difficult for those lens flares to appear. Traditionally, they've tried not to put them in. So while J.G. Abrams is using CGI to insert lens flares in Star Trek, most of the cinematographers history were trying to remove them because they viewed it the way I see it as a viewer. It's a moment that reminds you that you're watching something that was filmed and it breaks the illusion and drives you out of the show. So it was generally considered to be poor filmmaking. When you're filming in the forests of Vancouver, you end up with diffraction, which is difficult to deal with. Virtually any angle you're going to set up the camera is going to have some level of lens flares. And when they're looking for filming at a specific time of day to get specific lighting, in this case, probably either very late or very early in the day, more likely late, so they could they can have some daytime scenes and some nighttime scenes with one relatively short trip out to the woods to get this, it would be very difficult to avoid. So that's all I really have to say about Ephemascalata. It is generally a strong episode, which is primarily standalone, lays a couple of pieces in the groundwork for the proactive opposition to Mulder and Scully. And then next episode, in two weeks' time, we're going to be looking at Soft Light. Feedback can always be sent to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. You can leave reviews on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever else you're using to get access to the podcast. And thank you for listening. Intro and outro music is Outside Poolside by Laswell, created under the Creative Commons license. All other content copyright 2015, Bureau 42. Please feel free to send any comments or feedback to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com or leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Thank you for listening.